You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Hi, welcome to the show. It's bright and early on Wednesday, March the 2nd. A little damp outside this morning here in TW11. You'll be hearing later in the show more news in America from Pat Cummings surrounding the latest developments in the Bob Baffert situation, which took another turn yesterday as he issued a writ against Churchill Downs. You'll also be hearing from uh, Lee Mottishead very shortly on the Cheltenham handicap weights reveal yesterday. It sounds pretty dry. In fact, yielded some quite interesting bits and pieces of news and opinion. Uh, there's more in the show as well, including Clive Cox talking about his hopes for his two-year-olds by his own champion sprinter, Harry Angel, as we focus on first season sires with the flat season around the corner. But first of all, news has just come through to me this morning that Allegory de Vassi, who was the subject of a notable Betfair drift before the weekend, before the price came back in again and is now, as I speak to you, 6.2 on the exchange, will indeed miss the festival. Uh, racing manager to Rich Ritchie, Joe Chambers, is with me now. Uh, Joe, what's the situation here? Uh, she has chipped a bone in her hook and uh, will be on the sidelines for a minimum of three months. Uh, full duration is still TBD, uh, but we have taken a number of x-rays, which were all negative, over the weekend. Um, uh, however, she still was not fully sound, um, and it took us until we went for a scintigraphy scan yesterday evening uh, to identify uh, the acute area limbless, which we have now done. Uh, so I'm afraid, yes, chipped a bone in her hook and she'll be out for a minimum of three months. Now, before the weekend, there was a, a notable drift uh, on this horse on, on Betfair. She drifted right out. So the same sort of time as John Bond drifted out and, and, and came back in again. Um, presumably, there were people in, in the yard who knew what the issue was and were, were trying to profit from it. Uh, possibly. Um, not my area and not something I'm aware of, although I do know that that drift did correct itself very quickly on Friday. Uh, indeed, I spoke with one of your... Uh, regular columnist David Yates on Sunday afternoon uh, when, uh, you know, she had been much improved uh, uh, and we were anticipating that uh, all, all systems uh, would be go for Cheltenham. But um, the lameness continued and it wasn't until we took a scintigraphy scan yesterday afternoon that we were able to identify actually what the issue was because all the x-rays were negative, as I said. So what was the thinking behind the, you're, you're, not, you're very communicative normally, Joe, what was the thinking behind the sort of communications on this? Well, if you don't have anything conclusive to say, it's probably best to say nothing. Okay, and so. we didn't have anything conclusive to say, uh, particularly as our condition was improving over the weekend, so we thought it may have well have been a stone bruise. So you thought it was just best to wait and see before before giving too much information out? Indeed. Uh, it's a great shame that she won't be she won't be at the Cheltenham Festival this year. Um, how many runners do you expect to have all told? Uh, somewhere in the region of about 8 to 10. Uh, she was probably one of three or four fairly strong fancies that we thought we had that would be very competitive. So that's now probably down to something like three as opposed to four. And so, who would be the who would be the team captain? I suppose Vauban in the Triumph Hurdle. Who else are you looking forward to? Uh, if Irish Shackon Pursaw turns up, we would be very much looking forward to him as well. And I think if we if we can get Irish Shack to Cheltenham as Rich has started to coin it, um, I think we'd put everyone's mind at ease 
to see where um, where he might lie in the middle of um, what is a particularly deep field, I think. Uh, and in terms of Shaq and Poursois, it's going to be a, a desperately difficult decision for Paul Townend whether to ride him or Enegamine. Are you getting any vibes from the stable? Uh, the only vibe I'm getting is that he will do what Mr. R. Walsh used to do for many years, which was leave it until the very last moment, uh, until he has to make a decision. <laughs> um, you don't know who would ride Shaka if he didn't, do you? No, we haven't even spoken about it. Okay, and as far as the sort of the overall team is concerned, and the sort of rebuilding exercise, and the and the young horses coming in, um, would you expect this time in twelve months to have more than nine runners at the Challenge Festival? I would have thought so. We've got another, I think, eight or nine horses that are yet to run for us that are just turned four years of age. So we should have a few bumper runners this spring. Um, Mercury is entered in the bumper at Cheltenham as well as a, I'll try and pronounce it, Hulan Bator de Chez, uh, who has won two AQPS races in France uh, in October of last year. So he's not eligible for Irish bumpers, but he is for UK ones. Uh, and all being well between now and then, he will... Um, he will hopefully um, get through the ballot and take up that entry in the bumper as well. Uh, in the handicaps, um, we'll have a small hand. Vauban, as you mentioned, in the triumph goes there with an obvious chance. Uh, Royal Pagai, if he can get over Venetia's own ailments uh, at the moment in the Gold Cup. And uh, the infam- now infamous darling of social media, Gaelic Warrior in the Fred Winter. Um, is, is he really the, the real deal, this Gaelic Warrior? I mean, would, would you back him at the price he is at the moment? I don't know. I don't know if it's a good price or bad price. Um, all I know is that, taken literally, his mark from France was 139. Uh, we decided around Christmas time that he's either next year's supreme horse or let's see if the mark of 139 gets honoured. Uh, it did, in the shape of 129. Uh, so we decided all systems go and we would um, uh, have a go first time up in the, in the Fred Winter. And, you know, his form of his last run in, in France in particular is is very strong now in hindsight. Um, the horses around him have gone on to win a number of grade twos and even a grade one, I think one of them has won. Um, and his work at home has been very good. Um, so, you know, in Willie we trust. And um, let's see, it'd be quite an achievement, I think, if you could bring him there first time up. Uh, so there you have it. Lots of little interesting tidbits about other horses at the end there. But the main news is that Allegory Fassi, not easy at this time in the morning, uh, won't run in the Mayor's Novice Sirtle, for which she was a market leader. Uh, and Lee Moss said senior rush in the Racing Post. Uh, it's another Cheltenham. It's another one of these stories of a horse drifting and then coming back in and then a rumour here and a rumour there and eventually falling by the wayside. Nick, it's, it's one of those things that is only going to increase the, the cynicism of those who believe that where there is smoke, there is inevitably fire. And it's, it's strange timing as well in the sense that on, on Saturday... The, the theme that was running through the day wasn't necessarily all about the racing at Kempton. It was about the drift on John Bomb, another leading Cheltenham Festival fancy. And Nicky Henderson was joking that day that, look, the horse is fine. I've had 11 people ask me today. Even ITV asked me in the morning. He worked yesterday. He's absolutely fine. And indeed, he was fine because he went to the track and worked at, at Kempton yesterday. But Nicky was making that point about how every year now, there are horses like this that seem to drift on on the exchange, drift in the markets, um, and then look to be absolutely fine. But of course, there are those that are not. And with this particular instance of Allegri de Vassi, there are people who will say, well, it's just an absolute coincidence that that horse drifted last week and is now found to be injured. 
there will be others who do put two and two together and believe they are getting four. Now, of course, the problem is we don't know which of those two is well, right. I mean, Nick. I mean, the, the, the point here is that, that clearly there was an issue of sorts, but it, it comes to a point of at what point do you, do you report that issue? If you believe that to be, we, are, we still believe we're going to get to Cheltenham, but there's something which we're investigating. To what extent do you need to keep tell people every single medical veterinary detail of what you're doing if you are genuinely in good faith in the belief that you will still make the Cheltenham Festival? Is it acceptable to, uh, not withholding is the wrong word, but is it acceptable to keep that information uh, within the yard until such time as you know whether the horse is going to run or not? Um, I, I don't really know the answer to that question. It's a very difficult one. Well, I think, I think the, actually this one is slightly easier, doesn't it? If if the situation is and um, if the situation is the is the case that Allegri Vassi at the time when this drift took place, if if senior figures in the yard were aware that there was an issue with the horse, an issue that might potentially jeopardise that horse's participation in the Cheltenham Festival, if they were aware of that, and they were also aware that there was a market drift, and I don't know if they were or they weren't. It, the, the, there were media reports of it. Obviously, a lot of it was on social media, which, which trainers often wouldn't touch at all, wouldn't, wouldn't read. But if someone was aware of a market drift at the same time as there being a problem with the horse, then yes, I absolutely think they definitely should say something. The problem is that situation whereby horses do pick up niggles all the time, and trainers have often said that if we reported every time a horse had something wrong then we'd be firing out seven eight nine ten bulletins a day so i don't think trainers can report everything yeah. all the time but I, I i i think it all boils down to were they aware yeah that this horse had drifted on the betting exchanges and that people were talking about it because if they were and they still failed to say anything that does seem regrettable yeah, and it may very well be that that that, no, that Willie Mullins himself didn't know that, and and you know we all know that that is where the information comes from. And uh, but it, the final word, Lee, really is that it just behoves anyone connected or loosely connected with the horse, or anyone who knows someone who knows something about the horse. If you get privileged information, you can't go and lay it on Betfair. You, you just can't, you just don't do it. Oh, Nick, I mean, it, it it should just be so blatantly obvious. It sh there shouldn't even be a, um, a moral question in their head about it. Um, we all, everyone who works within racing will sometimes hear things. And there are things that you hear that you know straight away you should not seek to financially benefit from. Um, there's a sort of, a, a, an Ollington example, if you like, Nick. I was working in Melbourne, um, I was over in Melbourne for, for the festival uh two three years ago and a horse of joseph o'brien from the lexus handicap on the on the saturday at flemington um i think down draft I think his name was and he his odds for the the melbourne cup plummeted understand or his, or his prospects of winning the melbourne cup plummeted but bookmakers over here clearly were still in bed and his price remained the same and although i thought my goodness that horse now has a real big chance of winning the melbourne cup I felt honour bound to wait until the bookmakers woke up the following morning and corrected his price to, yeah. to to back the horse. Now you are an, you are um, an honourable man. I don't. 
<laughs> I think that would have been all fair in love and war. They should have had somebody well, staying up watching the racing. Well, potentially, and um, but, uh, but I know but, what you but mean. At the same time, you, you have those. Yeah, but you do have those systems where, where a story does come out, and you think if a story's out, then it's fair game. The bookmakers should know about it, and isn't it? If, if, if someone's gone off for a for a half hour walk when when the favourite for a channel festival race has been injured, and that that's been documented, then fair enough. That's that, that as you said, that is fair. But there, there are some questions where it's obviously um, not right. And if someone in the yard, if someone in any yard knows a horse is injured or has a problem then it is so clearly wrong for that person to financially benefit from it that there shouldn't even be a need to to debate that fact. So what we don't know here is 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 when people knew um, I, the, the fact that the owners um, weren't aware of it suggests that the, the, the time what it wasn't deemed to necessarily be something that would keep the horse out of the the festival but i say for me it, it all boils down to the fact did were people aware that that horse was drifting um and that um the people were talking about it if they were then they absolutely should have said something and the other the, the key obviously is that anybody knew there was a problem with that horse that might potentially jeopardize that horse's participation there is absolutely no way that individual or any individual in such certain such circumstances should seek to financially benefit from that knowledge. So that's Allegrida Vassi who doesn't run. All the big Irish hopefuls will. And at the Cheltenham handicap weights reveal yesterday, um, there was a certain air of of resignation, uh, Lee, amongst amongst the the British trainers uh, there. I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it did feel to an extent as though the white flag was being waved already. Um, reading what was said, Nick yesterday um i can understand to an extent why in the sense that you can't win a cheltenham festival handicap unless you can get into a cheltenham festival handicap and events have conspired so that the the irish uh, top stables um have got a huge number of horses in these races ireland as a nation has got a huge number of horses in these races and because their horses are so good relative to our horses at the minute they are dominating those spots that are likely to to get the horses into the into the contest. Um, as an example, Nick, the the the, the boodles, so the, the juvenile handicap hurdle and the Martin Pipe, the final race of the meeting at the moment. Eight of the top ten in the weights uh, are trained in Ireland. Seven of the top ten in the Coral Cup, the Grand Annual, and the Potemps Final are trained in Ireland. And in the Martin Pipe, twenty four of the top thirty three are trained in Ireland. Um, to an extent, this is as a result of the, the handicappers in Britain seeking to help British stables. Um, it was noticed that there had been an increase in the number of our horses holding ratings of 120 plus when they looked at the ratings file. And therefore, they've tried to, to counteract that slightly so that horses are coming down the weights more quickly over here now and younger unexposed horses are getting their first handicap mark at a lower level than would have been the case in the past and there is general agreement among trainers over here that that is happening and they are welcoming it it. but of course the knock-on effect is that the lower your handicap rating is the less likely you are to get into these Cheltenham Festival handicaps and as a result um, the the situation doesn't look great and as you say there was an awful lot of defeatist talk 
yesterday. Christian Williams, who won the big handicap at uh, Kempton on Saturday, the Coral Trophy with Cap de Nord. He expressed a view on the lines of there's almost no point entering these horses because they're not going to have any chance whatsoever of getting in. And, and Christian Williams actually can say that too because he very shrewdly won a handicap on Saturday that's more valuable than any handicap being staged at the Cheltenham Festival. So another big tick to Christian Williams. But yeah, the, the mood among British trainers yesterday or uh, yesterday, Nick, wasn't good. No, I mean it was it was a it was a good natured event in fairness, and I think there was a bit of gallows humour involved but yeah you'd certainly like to see a, bit, a little bit more front foot but having said that Gordon Elliott joined on on the telephone and it was it was striking how many horses he trains that are likely to turn up at the Cheltenham Festival he said he could run as many as 60 and when you're staring down the barrel of 60 Gordon Elliott's and 55 Willie Mullins it, it does rather sort of um make you understand why you might think that you're you're David against Goliath well, that's right. And it's not just 60 from one yard and 55 from another. They're 60 and 55 horses that all probably have got serious chances. They're not sending social runners across the Cheltenham Festival. These are all horses um, that will be there with, with live prospects. And that is even taking into account the fact that, as is the norm, the, 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 the ratings for the horses that they'll be running off in, in these handicaps is quite a bit higher than they would be running off in comparative, um, comparable Irish handicaps. So as an example, um, if we were looking at the, the average rating increase for Irish trained horses in Cheltenham Festival handicap hurdles, if you exclude the, the juvenile races, in 2018, Irish horses raced off a mark 2.8 pounds higher than their Irish rating. In 2021, that was 3.9. In 2022, the, the Irish trained entries are £4.9 higher in those handicap hurdles than they would be in an Irish handicap. Um, in all probability, that still won't be enough. The, 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 the reassessment of the Irish marks and the readjustment of the British marks combined seems unlikely to, to have much of an effect on the, on the results, but, but partly just in it because the British horses won't be in those races in sufficient numbers. And normally, as as the head of handicapping, Martin Greenwood conceded, there's going to be a grumble or two. There wasn't really much of one. Uh, I, I don't really think you know, Gordon Elliott had too many complaints at all. Uh, indeed, he nominated Death Duty in the Ultima as being a particularly well-handicapped horse. He he also said that he was just baffled by why there were two different handicap systems. I don't think he was being particularly critical. He said the handicaps have got a job to do. And it's something I actually asked in the press conference. I said, well, why? You know, if you'd landed from Mars, you'd say, well, hang on a minute. Why are there two different handicap scales in in britain and ireland and you know martin greenwood said look you could you could theoretically want there to be one but actually the the fundamental mechanics of handicapping are different in the two countries there are different qualification rules for example to qualify for a mark in in certain races that are, that are different in in the two countries so you'd have to go right back and scrape it all back and and start from scratch which is a you know almost insurmountable task so whilst there might be some sort of an appetite for it, it, it it's almost practically impossible. It's something that I, I know has been has been looked at in the past. Um, and at the moment when there's an awful lot of um, deep thinking about where British jump racing is and where British jump racing goes, that is inevitably one of the questions that has been asked, just in general terms. Would it make sense to have 
the the two nations being handicapped in one system and and in many ways it, it would make sense clearly it would make sense but equally if it's too complex for it to happen or if the the stumbling blocks to making it happen um, are deemed excessive then the likelihood of it happening is probably still pretty slim. Well, it's worth saying, Lee, if you were reading between the lines yesterday, you did get a few positives coming out of it as well. Nigel Twiston Davis said, I, I, I'm not going to nominate my, my best bet before promptly nominating Fantasticat in the Ultima, Fantasticat in the Ultima. Uh, he also gave an honourable mention to the old boy Ballyandy, who'd be ridden by a £10 claimer, whose claim he was keeping under wraps exactly for that purpose in the per temps, a race in which Martin Keithley, local trainer, was desperately hoping that Brawson would get in because he thinks he's really well treated. Henry Daly, although he was non-committal about whether the very exciting Hillcrest would actually run at the festival or not, uh, and similarly non-committal about whether he would run his Grand National hopeful Fortescue, he was absolutely adamant Rapper would would run. He had a couple of potential targets, uh, but he he certainly is, is going to be running. Ben Pauling suggested that Global Citizen, the old boy, was very well handicapped off a mark of 136, either over fences or over hurdles, and it, it hardly um, bears arguing with. And Alan King, although he was kind of bristling, particularly about the Henrietta Knight comments that we spoke about on the podcast, and she reiterated on my on my Sunday show about the difference between English and Irish trainers, uh, gave the glancing queen, uh, perhaps a homage to Hen, a big shout if the glancing queen went in one of the handicaps as opposed to the mayor's chase. So there were definitely a few little nuggets buried deep in there in addition to all the things that Gordon Elliott had to say. Mind you, when you finished listening to Elliott, you were pretty convinced he'd have about um, eight or nine winners. Well, with the evolving and, and really terrifying situation in Ukraine, much has been made of sports response, and indeed, in these situations, what sports relationship with with, poli- with polit- geopolitical situations should be. I mean, there's no better person in the horse racing firmament to ask than, than David Armstrong, who you'll know quite well from his regular appearances on this podcast and his capacity as uh, the boss of the Racecourse Association. But apart from that... Uh, David is also um, chair of uh, British Modern Pentathlon and is about to be chair of, of England Netball, has been chief executive of WASP's uh, Rugby uh, Football Union Club and was on the board there as well. So, David, you, you've really had a, a breadth of experience across a number of sports. You also attended um, a call with Nadine Doris, the Secretary of State for Digital Culture, Media and Sport, the other day. What did she have to say in terms of her guidance uh, to, to British sport in terms of what to do here? Well, I think she was speaking to a pretty broad church of sports on the call. Uh, so the advice was was quite general rather than very specific by sport. But the, the advice that government have been giving us uh, to all sports is to uh, take up the issue of the situation in Ukraine firmly with international federations, um, specifically to ask that uh, international federations bar Russian and Belarusian athletes from taking part athletes or teams from taking part in international competition Um, and also they were recommending that uh, British athletes should avoid situations where they're competing directly with Russians or Belarusians in any other individual competitions as well. So following on from uh, various conversations yesterday the IOC also issued a statement um, making those two points very clearly and that the IOC itself was supporting international federations in that regard. So that was really what the call was about. It was about Secretary of State 
giving British sports the chance to ask questions, to understand what it meant in terms of the international travel, and particularly for the most immediately upcoming events like the, the Paralympic or the Winter Paralympics, which are starting shortly in Beijing. Uh, what's the situation with the Winter Paralympics? Well, I think watching the news today, it still seems to be a little bit unclear as to what the IOC or the IPC, as it actually is, would, would do in that situation. Um, it's a tricky one because, of course, all the athletes, including Russian and Ukrainian and everyone else, uh, the athletes are already in Beijing. So it's very difficult to know what to do about that in terms of what happens. Do you go ahead with a competition? Do you go ahead but ask the Russians not to compete? I'm not quite sure what the outcome will be, but that's probably the most immediate pressing problem. Yeah, so that's an issue for the IOC, but from a sort of British government point of view, it, it, does the British government then advise British Paralympians not to compete against Russian Paralympians? Well, I think it's it's a difficult one um, at such short notice. I think if it was a month away, then it would be fairly easy to issue that guidance. When you're a, a Paralympic athlete who's you know built up their preparation and aspirations to take part in the in the in the Winter Olympics as these guys have, then it's very difficult to turn around to somebody and say at that point mm. you cannot compete, particularly at such short notice. So I don't know what the pragmatic solution is going to be yet, but it's, uh, it's certainly a topic of hot conversation. Yeah, yeah. I suppose you just have to hope that the IOC does does the right thing. Yes, I hope so. And uh, look, we we'll see uh, in terms of. What they're allowed to do legally as well, can they, uh, you know, once the, the athletes or the country have already arrived at the Games, can they throw them out? I'm, I'm not sure. So you're the um, uh, incoming chair, or you're about to be the chair of England Netball, and you're involved in modern pentathlon. Um, do you see this being an issue for, for horse racing on what you've seen? Do you see the horse racing as, as having to impose any sanctions either on owners or people who work in the, in the sport? Uh, not seeing anything yet. I mean, I think obviously, look, the Russian uh, and particularly Ukrainian, Belarusian uh, are countries that are not highly prominent in horse racing. Um, uh, the, the BHA have been in contact with their counterparts in Europe uh, already to talk about the situation and, and um, comment will become forthcoming on that, I'm sure. But in terms of the impact here in the UK, I don't see a great impact. There are, I think the Racing Post carrying an article today just talking about uh, quite a number of Ukrainian stable staff working across the country and how they will be looked after. But at this point, I'm not seeing the impact getting uh, significantly more than that. Um, although we, we do need to be on our toes to be to be vigilant in terms of you know any uh, involvement of Russian or Belarusian uh, individuals in racing or race ownership in any way. Yeah, so there's not obviously any any sort of significant oligarchs or or backers of the of the existing Russian regime who are prominent in resource ownership in this country. But it, does it does it become problematic that you're not actually sure? Well, it, it can do. I mean, I, you're right in that I don't think anyone immediately can name an individual who's actively involved. But you know that that may evolve, and there are partnerships, there are various ownership structures. So the BHA will always need to be vigilant in that regard. But um, at the moment, it doesn't seem as though there's anything too much to worry about. And have you been quite vigilant in your capacity with with, with sort of potential Russian-backed sponsors? Not that I know of any, but I'd imagine there must be some out there somewhere. Yeah, no, I think racecourses will be, will be careful um, and will be reviewing their, their sponsorship arrangements and partners um, at the moment to see if there are you know, any significant arrangements of that nature. Again, I'm not aware of any, but uh, I'm sure racecourses will review that carefully. 
Uh, David Armstrong there, the chief executive of the Racecourse Association, also with jobs uh, in British netball and modern pentathlon. Um, Clearly, racing just needs to be very vigilant, Lee. I mean, at this stage, there's no obvious sign of significant Russian investment, either in sponsorship or in ownership. No, the BHA put out a statement um, yesterday, Nick, in which it said the BHA joins many people and organisations across British racing in publicly and wholeheartedly condemning Russian military actions in Ukraine. And it went on to say that that initial assessment around Russian investment uh, is showing that initial indications suggest that such investment is extremely limited. I think that's what we've all thought. I think a lot, a lot of us for the last week or so have been racking our brains to try and think of of significant Russian connections uh, to racing in, in Britain or indeed in Ireland. And and we haven't been able to think of any. What there are, though, there are Ukrainian connections to racing over here through, through racing staff. Um, and yesterday, the National Association of racing staff came out with some figures that showed they found 28 registered register staff working in British yards hail from the Ukraine. A lot of those people are based in Lambourne um, and not surprisingly they are having a very hard time as well um, with family back home in, in Ukraine and, and your heart goes out to them Nick, because doing a job trying to live a normal life with, with that going on and with that in your head must be incredibly difficult. Um, NARS, th- th- their chief exec, George McGrath, has said that they are very keen to help uh, members of staff from the Ukraine. They're getting information from them and they said they'll do anything that they can. George McGrath said, we've already started collections of things that will help with the humanitarian crisis. A lot of people are doing that um, and I'm sure the sport here will do will do what it can. It will continue to try and see if there are any any Russian connections. But at the moment, I think compared to most other sports, we are we are thankfully lacking. What David was saying there about the, the Paralympics, the Paralympics GB have called for Russia to be banned from the Games, as you'd expect. Uh, and he was saying about the sort of legal framework that the, the IPC, the International Paralympic Committee, were, were saying, said that the Andrew Parsons, the head of the IPC, said any outcome must be based on our constitution, the values we stand for, but the options in front of us will be limited by legal framework. Any decision we take is open to legal challenge from different sides. That's what we need to be very careful about because it could be from Russia or from other nations. We need to make a decision based on our constitution and the values we stand for. And I'm thinking a crucial decision is set to be made today on that, but we are rather... Uh, getting away from the point. Uh, Lee, big fine for bookmaker 888. What's happening here? Yeah, well, we, we know bookmakers make um, very, very sizable profits. So when you hear of a, of a fine, you just you sometimes think, well, does that make much of a difference? But this really is a big one. So 888, uh, which at the moment is in the process of acquiring, buying um, the, the non-American William Hill estate has been fined 9.4 million pounds by the gambling commission gambling commission in relation to failings uh, regarding money laundering and social responsibility it's the second time the 888 has been given a big fine by the gambling commission it was 7.8 million pounds in 2017 for failing vulnerable customers um Looking at the, the things that the, the the gambling commission found on this occasion was eight 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 failing to carry out an interaction with a customer who lost thirty seven thousand pounds in a six week period during the COVID pandemic and giving a customer which they knew who they knew was an NHS worker earning one uh, one thousand four hundred pounds a month a monthly deposit cap of 
of £1,300. And money laundering failures, as I say, were also uh, significant with customers being allowed to deposit £40,000 before carrying out uh, source of fund checks. And one customer in particular was allowed to spend £65,835 in five months without any sort of source funding being checked. So really significant failings by 888 a huge firm, uh, enormously regrettable, as one would expect. 888 came came out and said the things that you, you would expect them to have said, that mistakes have been made, they regret them, and they've got a great structure in place. But it remains a case that this, this firm has made, uh, I say, very significant errors. It comes at a bad time because uh, this is just the worst possible time for this sort of thing to be uh, to be happening. You yeah. want bookmakers to be seen to behaving responsibly at the moment, although this is a, a historic offence, the 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 optics of it are particularly bad. All right, we will traverse the Atlantic again. I will be doing so later in the week to to Florida for some racing at Gulfstream Park. But uh, check in with Pat Cummings again because it's been another busy day <laughs> in in Bob Baffert et al. Uh, what's happened this time, uh, Pat? Uh, Baffert and his team have, have now have, have slapped down the writ. On Churchill Downs, that's I mean, that's as distinct from the Kentucky Horse Racing Commission we were talking about last week. This is Churchill Downs. This is the two-year ban from the Downs, the Derby, and the qualifying race points, and so on and so forth. That's correct. It's a lawsuit uh, from Bob Baffert against Churchill Downs Incorporated, against their CEO, Bill Carstangen, chairman of the board, R. Alex Rankin. Um, it is as uh, serious and robust as it gets. And as really predicted on this program, uh, Nick, it was just a matter of time before something like this came. And it did drop on March 1st. There you go. So what is uh, Baffert's legal team uh, alleging? What's their case against Churchill Downs and, yeah. and Bill Carstangen? They raise eight counts against them. The majority, it's about a 56-page document. Um, the majority of, of that time is spent in, in some of the earlier counts, but mostly they are, uh, and this is a federal lawsuit, right? So this is in federal court. They're claiming that Baffert's rights to due process have been deprived, which would be a constitutional violation if it wasn't uh, confirmed uh, by the courts. Um, as a result, um, you know, they're, they're claiming that there is irreparable harm that Baffert has suffered and at the moment for which there is no remedy at law. Uh, so they are asking for some significant punitive damages, um, which, you know, is, is a whole separate, uh, separate discussion. But they're also, they're also alleging that Baffert, uh, or rather that the, the Churchill Downs does not have a common law right to ban Baffert on their own, that, that the private property rights do not extend in this direction and that the only entity that can really do so is the Kentucky Horse Racing Commission. There's also antitrust uh, allegations here that have to do with the board of directors of Churchill Downs and trying to keep Baffert out and things relative to that. So it is a long and winding road. At the very end of the day, if you said, what is Bob Baffert uh, and Bob Baffert Racing Stables asking for? They want an injunction preliminarily that can then therefore become permanent thereafter that would keep uh, CDI or Churchill Downs Incorporated from suspending Baffert. Mm -hmm. So get rid of the suspension that they cannot deny him the privilege of access to the grounds or stall space at the racetracks, and that they cannot prohibit Baffert or any horse trained directly or indirectly by him from earning points to qualify for the Kentucky Derby. 
and they cannot refuse to recognize the points that Baffert horses otherwise would have earned on the road to the Kentucky Derby. Right, and if Baffert's legal team have bowled a, a pretty sharp delivery at Churchill Downs, uh, Castangen's taken two great strides and uh, taken an enormous swipe back. So, as predicted by Amir Zidane, the owner of Medina Spirit, last week on this show and elsewhere, and then on the TV show, and as uh, as as also. Uh, foretold by the comments from Churchill Downs leading up to this, and no one's giving an inch. But whatever happens here, Pat, if Baffert wins this, whatever, they've still got the issue of the KHRC, the Kentucky Horse Racing Commission, to deal with, and the 90-day suspension he was given effective March the 8th. He was refused um, a stay uh, when when the appeal was was processed. So what happens now with that? Even if they even if they get a result with Churchill Downs, what what happens with the KHRC? So they have uh, filed a suit in the state court system here in Kentucky, uh, trying to get that get basically get that stay back to, to get relief from the KHRC's denial. Um, TBD on that as well. So I mean, we're two totally separate tracks here, Nick. Right? You've got Baffert suing to keep the suspension, which is due to go in place a week from uh, yesterday, March eighth. Uh, from going into place. We'll see if that happens. Um, and But now this this is a whole nother track that is now in the, in the federal courts. And time is certainly of the essence. So um, I don't know the degree to which the, the Western District of Kentucky uh, will act, uh, but uh, they're going to have to if, uh, if, if Baffert's uh, opinion here that, that he is really um, – being unfairly treated and, and being denied his due process as provided by the Constitution is really happening or not. Yeah, it's, it's worth just pointing out, for those people who aren't actually paying any attention to what Baffert's actually running on the track, there's no exaggeration, Pat, to say that he's in the form of his life. It's yeah, not, the, numbers, it's ridiculous. the numbers are great. Um, I, I would say a, a, an element of that is the fairly small uh, mm. horse population in California. So it does, I think, help his numbers a little bit. Of course, he had Pinehurst win the Saudi Derby uh, just last week. Um, although he, uh, I'm actually in Hot Springs, Arkansas, right now at the moment, uh, where they had the Rebel Stakes last weekend. Uh, Baffert had a very heavy favorite in New Grange, who did not no. uh, perform well and ran well up the track. But well, um, we, yeah, we, the Baffert spoke, numbers are huge. Yeah, we spoke to the trainer of An Oho on the podcast uh, yesterday. He was fantastic value but yeah he's got but this is going to yeah every time there's a big trial race now it's going to come into sharp focus because he's got Armagnac and Doppelganger in the San Felipe at Santa Anita on, on Saturday and yeah he's got to be long odds on to win that yeah absolutely and you know, the 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 points have not been awarded so if a Baffert horse has won one of these Kentucky Derby points awarding races they're simply not giving the points to Baffert they're giving the normal point structure to wow. every other horse in their right rightful positions they're just withholding the points for the Baffert trainees so look it's in the courts we always expected it to get here and as I believe uh, a famous uh, boxing official once said let's get it on yeah yeah um there is some positive news for betters in Kentucky Pat and this is right in your wheelhouse what's happened yeah, I've been very involved in this, Nick. Uh, a series of uh, bills in the Kentucky legislature have been dropped in the last day. Uh, they'll come up for consideration over the next few weeks. But one in particular that that, that should have the punter uh, certainly uh, turning their head is a, a, a bill that would basically standardize paramutual wagering taxation. 
Now, that is not something that's going to stir up a lot of people at cocktail parties. But the one element in there (laughs) that will is that the paramutual rounding of dividends. So so if you earned $2.60 for a win bet, um, that dividend has been rounded down from some other number above it. Uh, maybe you, you were owed $2.78. It could have been rounded down to two sixty. The project, the proposed law in, in Kentucky would change the rounding from the nearest 10 cent unit to the nearest penny, nearest one cent unit. So you would, you know, get, if you were owed $2.68, you would get $2.68. Uh, uh, how much does this actually add up? It sounds like we're, we're bickering over pennies here, but it, it adds up quite considerably. In the last five years in Kentucky racetracks, Nick, total amount of money withheld as paramutual breakage is estimated at roughly $33 million wow. in rounded down pennies. And that's just the thoroughbred and standard bread tracks in Kentucky. We estimate that that this figure nationwide for a single calendar year is probably around sixty million dollars a year. Uh, it, it's 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 substantial. It adds up, and it's been this way forever. And we're really hoping that this law will get changed. It's House Bill six oh seven in the Kentucky House of Representatives, and we'll have a result one way or another by mid April. Yep, Patrick Cummings. Thank you very much. Racing's very own Robin Hood. Pat Cummings, the director of the <laughs> thoroughbred idea foundation well it might be pretty bleak outside at the moment and the rain might be pouring down but it's not going to be long until the first two-year-olds of the season are out we're only three or so weeks away really from races at lingfield kempton and of course the traditional brocklesby which is normally the first two-year-old race run on turf and we're sort of starting to think about first season sires and how they might get on horses of precocity and speed and one sire i think we're all looking forward to is, is Harry Angel, such an explosive horse for, for Clive Cox. So I thought, let's check in with Clive and see if he's got any Harry Angel progeny and, and how they're getting on. And it sort of makes you realise, Clive, that the time passes extremely quickly when you think it was like basically yesterday that you were training him to win a July Cup. I know, it does. It flies by. and um, But the, the same sort of excitement, I think, having trained Harry Angel um, and being... Crowns the, the fastest six furlong in the world, of course, um, at the time. Um, and seeing his progeny come through is very exciting. And um, I, I think a lot of them have a lot of similarities. I'm very pleased to say that we've uh, we've got five. And um, the Colts are moving forwards very well. And, um, you know, the weather's been quite kind to this point, very wet now. But um, I'd be happy with what I'm seeing and, and physical development as well as um, good temperaments. Um, they're all really pleasing me at this stage. And um, so, uh, yeah, they're all they're all unbeaten at the moment. If we keep that record intact, <laughs> I'd be very happy. Are they of a type? Could you kind of, could you characterise them? Could you pick one out and go, oh yeah, that's by Harry Angel? Yeah, I think he, he had a very, um, yeah, a very round, sprinting type look about him, but he had a, a good, depth and length to himself as well which um definitely the ones that we've got are very good bodied and they're good movers uh like i say i think he he was i can remember really um being quite concerned when the ground was really bad in the haydock sprint but he 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 was 
a course record holder on quick ground. He coped with easy ground as well. So I hope that's not going to hold them back. I think from a physical sense, if they're strong enough, they look like they'll be early enough. I mean, he was a very expressive horse um, to us on a race course. Was he like that at home as well? He certainly was. I think um, it's fair to say uh, he was very athletic. He was he was uh, playful, but in a, in a very manageable and um, uh, you know professional way, really. Um, but he liked to get on with life, and, and um, you know the guys that we've got at the moment are all training very well and very pleasingly. And I hope and pray that those similarities that he showed in his ability will be apparent when they start running. Yeah, now the interesting thing uh, I, I always find about first season sires and, and particularly sprinting sires is that people expect them to have early sharp two-year-olds, even if they themselves as, as really good horses haven't developed until a little bit later. Is that is that a, sort of a, a misconceived uh, expectation, if you like? Well, I think they're all individuals and obviously from different dam lines, um, that would be my my thought as as all of them are individuals and um you know i think if if you know there was no stopping him he was early enough and then we just had um a couple of we had a couple of hiccups with him that were not his fault entirely but um he he won his first race in the mill reef mm. at, at the end of the season but by golly he he certainly um improved in abundance as a three-year-old and, and beyond he was he was uh it was very fast yeah and so i suppose what i'm getting at is are you seeing signs of, of his progeny coming to hand quickly getting the hang of it quickly likely to be on a race course even end of march april may uh, yeah i really hope so i think from all of our two-year-olds as is always the case we, we keep raising the bar and you you just love to see those horses that remain in the comfort zone as long as possible and I'm really pleased to say that all of all of his, uh, all of the Harry Angel progeny we have have, have definitely continued in that um, comfort zone at this stage. And, you know, we've got a, another chapter to explore with most of them, but I'm very happy indeed. All right. Thanks to, to Clive and to Pat and to David. Lee is still with me and Lee's got a tip for you for today. Well, Nick, I'm going to play safe in the sense I'm going to tip a horse trained by Gary Moore, who is in the most rampant form at the moment. In the last fortnight, uh, 12 winners from 44 runners. He had that superb uh, four-timer at his local track, Fontwell, on Sunday. And in the 3.40 at Wincanton this afternoon, he runs a horse called Richie Dish in the Racing TV Extra Handicap Chase. This is a horse who is not one of the more team stable stars. In fact, his last three starts, he started at 66 to 1 twice and 80 to 1. But in one of those three starts, he made what was so far has been his sole outing over fences. It was in the, the good two-mile novice chase that took place at Lingfield on its Winter Million Festival. Yes, the horse was beaten 53 lengths, but that was a quality race. And for a lot of the journey, he looked like he was competitive, competitive um, with better horses. He's very probably got in on a fair handicap mark for a, a chasing uh, newcomer of 91. And he looks like a very shrewd job by the Moore team. And I expect him to go well in the 340. That sounds like an excellent uh, selection to me, Lee. Thank you very much for your time. That was Wednesday, the 2nd of March. We'll be back to do it all over again tomorrow. Bye-bye. <laughs> you 
You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Thank you.